Hey guys, what's up? It's Zemet here with Cartel Aristocrats, cast number 39. I'm joined this week with my co-hosts, Travis Allen, Jim Caesar Salad, and then we also have two guests this week. We have Ed Wynn. He's a, he's probably going to be our next co-host. He's been a guest on quite a bit. He's a buyer for Kerwan's Game Shop. And then we also have Paul Fudo, uh, a retired grinder, I guess you could say. He used to grind the circuit over with MTG Deals. Um but I think he sort of transitioned into a more managerial role lately. I don't know. We'll let him explain exactly what's going on. Uh, Paul, do you want to sort of explain, since you haven't been on this cast before, exactly what you do for MTG deals? Sure. Um, I used to be the head buyer on the road. I was the one big fat white guy with the Asian dudes. And um, <laughs> we, uh, I did the GP circuit pretty hard for about a year and a half. And then I transitioned more into operations for... I don't know, maybe six or eight months, and then ended up going basically into straight pricing. And so I set almost all of our singles pricing by sell for like that you see on like MTG price and stuff like that. So basically I just do pricing from home and don't really travel as much because keeping prices up while you're on the road is kind of chaotic. So in that sort of time, uh, you've seen MTG Finance change. You know, you guys used to be at the, and you still are in some respects, at the head of the game when it comes to the GP buys. You guys would always have some of the higher prices out there. Um, have you seen sort of a demand lately in what players want versus what they wanted a couple of years ago? Like, are there things that you've noticed because MTG deals has been so ubiquitous for so long in the GP circuit that's changed over time? So I think that, some of it is about how linear things like standard is. And also some of it's about, you know, before the last couple of years, modern was just the easiest thing to sell at a GP or anywhere, honestly. If you had real modern staples or someone had like a real modern deck that wanted to sell, you always wanted to buy it. I mean, it was, the market was just incredible for it. And obviously the slowdown in growth that we've seen in the last couple of years with like a still standard format is going to affect it. And so that's where you see things more like Frontier, the 50DH deck or whatever, being more popular, it's more that just the game's getting a little stale, I think. And that's helped. I mean, that's making helping finance diversify, but it's making it harder to do. And speaking of the game getting stale, we just had our first results from the Star City event over in Ohio, and a lot of stuff jumped. Do you guys sort of want to talk about whether or not you had any holdings for all these cards that just jumped and like whether or not you had called it? I know Jim was pretty big on some of the cards that might have gone up. Um, if we want to just sort of go through the lineup and talk about the results and whether or not we made any money. Uh, so I guess I'll start. Um, I've been playing a bunch of the standard format online because I don't really go to shops anymore, and I wanted to know what was going to be good and if everything was as good as advertised. Uh, the Sea Healy Rye thing had already spiked, and was, I think, as good as advertised. I just don't think that people have really figured out what the best shell for it is. So your $20 Sahelis are probably still fine for the next, I don't know, couple of weeks at least until after the Pro Tour. Um, I think that the, it's going to do bad things to Standard and eventually Felidar Guardian will get banned, so I don't know if you want to hold them forever, but they didn't really change that much this weekend. Um, the cards that I was kind of saying I think will be impactful are the support cards for that deck, like Torrential Gear Hulk and here the Harbinger and uh, like just some of the uncommons will just start to get really expensive. Like there were a lot of decks that played four Glimmer of Genius and four Torrential Gear Hulks and 
Thelmer of Genius is like a 50 cent uncommon right now, and it could be like a $2 uncommon at a standard Grand Prix in the next couple of months because it's just people are playing a lot more of them than they used to. Um, the tournament was won by a green-black deck that was pretty much the the centerpiece of that deck or from the new set was the Walking Ballista, and that card is, got really dumb expensive this weekend and will probably go down a little bit. It probably won't be as expensive as Smuggler's Copter, but I've been wrong before, so I don't I don't really know. Like twenty dollars seems like the upper like the limit for like what a standard rare could be, but I think there's too many cards in the set that are just like weird and will still be worth money that that won't happen. Bad. Um, <clears throat> so usually during the first weekends, I try and sit at the store and I have my stream up on one computer and uh, Crystal Commerce up on another computer and I just sit there and update prices. And for the most part, things were kind of set in place. I don't think uh, anyone really saw Black Green Delirium as being a real contender. But the things like that that <clears throat> do super well are like the uncommons, like Winding Constrictor. Um, I think I put like over four hundred online, and we had orders that it went from like four hundred something to like three fifty to two fifty, and it just got depleted super fast with the occasional TCG direct um, orders like that pulled like four at a time or whatever. Um, in terms of the cards that will do well going forward, I think Jim probably called it pretty well there's a ceiling on how expensive a standard rare can be mainly because masterpieces has incentivized vendors to just open boxes in mass um and it just and it just drives down the cost of almost everything walking ballista is the type of card where in any other format it might be worth more but because it kind of only really fits into the black green shell with winding constrictor there's probably an upper limit of like I know it's at like twelve fifty right now. I don't think it'll go much higher than that, even if the deck does continue to see a ton of play. Mainly because it's a little bit more restrictive in terms of like it's it, it's actual ceiling. Just because there's just going to be so many copies of it out there, the cards that realistically have the higher ceiling are probably mythics that are more ubiquitous. Torrential Gear Hulk is a pretty good example because we saw it being played in the blue black deck, the blue red deck. Uh, like the Jeskai, the Healy decks, like all these shells are very good for a torrential gear hulk. Uh, Verdus gear hulk is kind of in the same boat. It sees play outside of just the black green delirium decks, so there's probably a much higher ceiling for those. It's funny to me that you say walking ballista <clears throat> would be better in a different standard format because I think it's really good because it's in this format. You've got Wine and Constrictor, which gives it an additional trigger on coming to play and when you pump it. You've got the Sahili combo, which makes it valuable, uh, more valuable than normal because you have an on-speed kill for uh, instant win condition. Um, you can also do things like triggering uh, the new Morbid, whatever the Morbid keyword is, one that when you leave it, have a battlefield leaves play. Revolt, um, it, can revolt. Revolt. it can flip your Abyssins on command. Like It seems like normally it wouldn't be this good, but we have like the framework in place to really pay you off for it, with Wine Constrictor being a big part of that. I think like the closest analogy I would draw. Sorry to cut you off. The closest analogy I would draw would be like Hangerback Walker. Hangerback Walker was it actually was much higher. I think it was like it probably peaked out twenty because it saw play in almost like quite literally every deck. Like it would see play in like the Abzan control shells. 
just because it was a good two drop. It's all playing like all the way up to green and white tokens, etc. It just had so much more use. Whereas I, again, I think winding constrictor is a little bit more narrow in terms of the types of deck that actually do want it. Well, winding constrictor for sure. You don't think that walking blister might slowly slip into the other decks though. Like we kind of saw with smugglers copper, like copper started out and just like the vehicles deck. Right. And then the other list started to pick it up when they realized how good it was. I I'm not sure that, Walking Ballista is good enough by itself without enough plus one plus one counter synergy cards that just don't exist in a lot of other shells other than green black. Like you can play it with Rishkar, you can play it with Verderous Gear Hulk, you can play it with um, Nissa Voice of Zendikar. But at the end of the day, two mana for a one one is not a good deal. Four mana for a two two is not a good deal. You have to like really be getting a lot of value out of this card more than it just being an onboard trick. Like, if it's not big enough to survive a shock, then it doesn't do anything against the Sihili-Rai combo. Yeah, and that's fine. I mean, I'm not I'm not claiming that, it, like, it absolutely will become the next Hangerback Walker. I'm just kind of, like, you know, flexing a little bit here, wondering how, how much you could push it. Right, and I think that's definitely a question that someone that may not be, like, on the cast right now is thinking, like, why is this not Hangerback Walker? Why is this not Smuggler's Copter? And despite being a colorless card that you could theoretically put in any deck, it's just not good enough in decks that don't take advantage of what it can do. I don't think that's unfair. We will Paul, see. Do you want to talk about sort of what happened with with uh, your thought process? Did you guys sort of pick up on any of this? Sorry, I couldn't hear you. Was that to me? Yeah. So, like... The biggest issue with this is, like, obviously we all watched the whole weekend and we all, you know, are pricing cards or, you know, someone bought me out of this or whatever, and that's fine. But, like, the biggest thing I took away from this weekend is when I was repricing Standard again today is that the break math on this set is so good because it's a small set that right now has a rare that's, like, even TCG Net's, like, 10 or $11, and it's a small set and we have Masterpieces, that all of these cards are just going to get burned into the ground. And so, like, a couple of cards are going to go up, but the biggest issue for the set is that, especially because distributors had a lot of extra product because the pre-sales weren't that good, is that all of this is going to get open to death, and the market's going to take, like, a 20% hit right before the PT, and stuff will spike then, obviously, but overall, I mean, I just wouldn't keep an Aether Revolt card. So you're saying Magic is run forever? No, Magic's going to be cheap. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah, and personally... Uh... I mean, I I think the entire cast called Verderous Gear Hulk to go up from where it was. I don't think any of us were wrong on that. I did not see how ballistic the walker would be. Uh, that is definitely a card that seems powerful, at least in the first week. And, I mean, you dump them now. I agree with Paul. Just get rid of them. Don't look back. Leave the next 10% for the next guy. The comment about the pre-orders being weak is interesting because for the armchair finance guy like myself or you know probably a lot of our listeners we can factor in all the other equations small set valuable rare uh masterpieces but like we don't know that feedback was like th that there wasn't a lot of pre-sales like right like that's a piece of information that's missing for us which can really m change your the dynamic of the set a little bit um so it's good to hear some of that kind of like back channel information I mean, I don't necessarily know exactly how much each store is ordering, but you can tell sometimes why the pre-order prices of stuff that just doesn't change very much. Like, they throw up the initial price point, and it just doesn't go up. 
that usually means that there's not very many pre-orders. Like if 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 you're having trouble pre-ordering cards from like Star City because they just keep going out of stock and they keep raising the price and relisting them, that's usually a pretty good indication that you know, hey, they're probably doing a lot of pre-sales. Like for example, the last card that I think that had that kind of an issue was uh, Chandra uh, Torch of Defiance, where it was like. It was like $30, then it was $35, then it was $40, then it was $50, then it was $60. If it goes up that much from its starting price, people are ordering them. So there's there's some amount of incentive to continue to open boxes, and that will increase the pre-order sales. Um, but like one of the things that I knew was probably a problem with this set was the fact that Fatal Push was pre-ordering for like $5, and there's no reason that people should be paying $5 for an uncommon. We're sold out at five dollars. I know people are dumb. I don't know why they're paying five dollars for an uncommon. Dude, everyone's sold out at like five dollars. Like it's, it just doesn't matter, man. I know it doesn't matter. It just doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand why people are spending twenty dollars on four uncommons and they can wait for like three months and they'll not be that expensive. Like, I mean, I, that's that's just a stupid statement. That's stupid. Like, Stoke the Flames is like $9, and you're saying, oh, gee, I have to have this play set of cards for my deck to work. It's 20 bucks. There's okay. no need to push them around. We don't have to be that way. I just, it's like, the card is probably the most in-demand card in Aetherable. It's going to be a couple of boxes in Uncommon. Again, Stoke the Flames was like $10, as that was an Uncommon. I don't I think it was that high, but... It was. There was a period of time where it was like, it was basically double digits. It might have been nine. And, uh... Did you sell them at nine? I didn't really have any, but I remember watching them on TCG Player. They got expensive. If I could sell uh, that thing for nine, I'd be stoked. You said that. Um, God damn it, Jeremy! I'm so. Maybe no one right wants now. to wait. Th- no one wants to wait three months for Fatal Push to come down. Anyways, I don't know. I don't want to give the guys who are willing to pay that front commons a hard time. I don't think that's unfair. Um, speaking of, you know, sort of these things going on with paying for an obscene, obscene amount. Oh my god, amount of money for a card. Uh, besides the standard price spikes, we've also seen Modern start to take off with SRAM, I believe it's called, the Cheerios deck. And a card that uh, we should be watching out for that the listeners really should be is Mox Opal. It's starting to trend up again. This is at $60 at its high, got reprinted one down at 30 and it's climbing back up to 35 36 It's one of the key parts to that deck killing on turn three. And Retract already went up, obviously. And Opal goes in a lot of decks. So it's just something to keep an eye on if you see them in a trade binder. Has anyone managed to sell any retracts yet? I sold 15. I sold six today. What you guys have, Matt? Six? Uh, I sold my copies, I think, for nine for regular ones and or 18 for foils. You got someone to pay you nine? Was that on TCG or what? Yep. Yeah, I got sixes on TCG. Yeah, they literally sold today. Uh, Zach Elsick posted a deck list, I think, yesterday on Twitter. He was playing the Cheerios deck, and he said he top-aided the like local IQ or whatever. And he, he said won the IQ. Was good. He won the IQ. What? Whatever. Like that. He just did. He did well with the deck and posted a deck list. And I think the biggest thing that people were like waiting for was someone to post a deck list, and that just kind of got the ball rolling. I think. Um, yeah, that Mox Opal is definitely the most expensive card in that deck. So if a lot of people were like looking for a cheaper modern deck to build like four mox opals not that bad the deck doesn't play um like doesn't play expensive fetch lands it doesn't play 
I don't know, like Tarmogoy for Liliana or, or Noble Hierarch. So it, it dodges a lot of, and like Cavern of Souls. So it has like a, a low cost to get in. Yeah, it's a really affordable deck. I mean, you have, you know, now you have the pure stills and the retracts, which before SRAM was printed would have cost you a grand total of $25 for all eight cards. And the Mox Opals and then even the Mana Base is not too bad and you can shrink it in cost if you need to and it plays like what 25 zero cost equipment so you're not paying a lot of money for those yeah it's 20 25 quarters and uh 15 lands and then just your combo piece and stuff and that's it ed and paul have you guys seen anything happen in modern lately price wise or demand wise locally i mean opal has definitely gone up i had to raise the buy again um i think this morning i am um, Locally, not as much. It's more about hesitancy. Like I, I don't know what Ed's noticed, but I've definitely seen that. Like compared to you know a few years ago, recently modern has had. You have to work a little bit harder to sell the higher end modern staples because modern masters is coming up. If you're experiencing hesitancy, you might want to see a doctor. That was awkward. <laughs> That's Travis for you. <laughs> but. I just think that every, the market's a little bit hesitant on modern for things that, like, I personally think that, like, buying into Mox Opal is not really an issue because there's only so many cards they can put into MM3, and some of the Mythic slots are basically already tied up. But other than that, other than, like, this deck and maybe a little bit of Wiggle and, like, Affinity and um, Karn, most of the stuff hasn't really moved well. Yeah, I pretty much agree with Paul here. Um, <clears throat> we kind of have this, like, after uh, Mark Rosewater announced, I think on his Tumblr last week, that there would be a master set every year from here on out, I think we've, we're probably going to fall in kind of a pattern that I've started to notice in the past years. We have a kind of a cyclic period where <clears throat> the master's sets kind of cause everyone to panic buy immediately afterwards. Oh, this card wasn't reprinted. People are inclined to buy them right away. And then as it gets later on in the year, I'm starting to hear the conversation, oh, I should wait on Snapcast, or I should start waiting on Liliana, because in three months' time, it's surely going to get a reprint, and the price will tank. Anything that dodges Modern Masters 3 will probably see it like a huge uptick. And then as years goes on, like, oh, I'll just wait until Modern Masters 4 or Eternal Masters 2 or wherever it's going to be for the price to drop again. So things like Noble Hierarch, Zendikar Fetches, Tarmogoyz, those types of things, most people who wanted them to use them probably already owned them, and anyone who's been on the fence is most likely going to wait at this point. I uh, I just had the topic of modern staples. Um, I haven't been able to play a lot lately for a variety of reasons. So this past week, um, in, in anticipation of modern master spoilers finally starting, I took most of my like fifteen dollar, ten dollar and up cards out of my like personal stock binder, my playsets, and listed them on TCG Player. <clears throat> Because I needed, I'm like, all right, well, I might as well get rid of these because I haven't used them in a long time. Not going to use them for a while, and not, you know, a lot of them will be reprinted. I can always buy back in. Um, but I'm really impressed with how fast they sold. Like I, you know, just one guy selling personal play sets. I cleared out Chalice of the Void, Zuliana the Veils, uh, got with Stony Silences. Somebody bought my slightly played Foil Simeon Spirit Guides, Prismatic Omens, Blood Moons, um, all that type of stuff. So I, I, I'm really surprised at how many modern staples I have sold in the last 48 hours. I would have expected it to be much slower. Yeah, I listed a Scape Shift deck and then a Nauseam deck that walked into St. Louis the other day, and they basically sold in a split second. Like, the demand there is just so high that you really need to watch out for, like, anything, really. Shocks are going, like, crazy. I mean, 
the crazy thing is still how low they are. I know, like, and, and this might not be true anymore, Paul, but I know Haruya at least was paying like six bucks on Temple Garden and then got out the shrine. And, Dude, like, Jeremy, check your cable or something because you're really staticky. Oh, it's your better? phone right there. Nope. Better. <laughs> no. <laughs> how about now? No. All right, get back to me. Definitely put your face really close to the microphone to the camera, though. That that's ideal. Helps so, us a lot. One of the things I have noticed with modern is that, like what you were experiencing, Travis, where a lot of the secondary staples, they actually sell fine because no one's scared of them. But with things like, you know, someone's going to think about buying a Tarmogoyf, there's a lot of, like, there's a lack of consumer confidence there. But if someone's thinking of Scape Shift or, you know, even like some of the other ancillary pieces, especially sideboard cards, no one's scared about buying sideboard cards, you know? And so, like, that makes people feel more safe when it's not something big and obvious. Well, you know, I, I, I think that makes perfect sense, and I, I would am inclined to agree with you. I guess I was caught off guard by the fact that I sold two Lilianas because it's like, what are the two banner mythics you expect this year? Liliana and Stampcaster, right? Like, those are the cards. Um, I didn't manage to sell any of my caverns. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think you're mostly correct, but I was surprised at the multiple, like, expensive cards that I sold as well because those are the ones I would think people would wait on. All right. Is it any better? Yeah, you're good. Yeah. All right. Let's try and get through this. We have a couple of viewer questions to answer. I, mean, I know we were talking about this before the cast. Uh, and I know Travis has relative experience with this. I'm pretty sure Ed and Paul probably do. Uh, Sage, at Sages YZ asks, Hi there. Headed to Hong Kong and to Tokyo slash Japan for a trip and was wondering if there was any value in picking up MTG product overseas. Thoughts as someone who is relatively new, is there a, a market for Japanese cards? Uh, well, I'll go ahead and start. Um, the I, you know, I don't know exactly what experience like Jeremy Ed and Paul have had with this. Mine was strictly as a guy who showed up with some cash in his pocket and was going to crawl some stores, not a dealer, not a vendor. Everything that I bought was going to get sold on TCG Player. Um, I could chat about this for a while, but there are some particulars you want to keep in mind. The first, remember, foreign cards are not popular except with an extremely small niche population. Uh, so, like, you will find huge piles of like Japanese casual cards, like uh, black market. Yeah, uh, a huge pile of cheap, really cheap Japanese black markets. They're going to be like pennies on the dollar compared to American copies. You're going to get really excited and you're going to buy 65 of them. And then you're going to realize nobody that plays black market wants non-English copies because those people read their cards. So stay away from foreign non-foil cards. Just a couple of them you could potentially do well on, but unless you're really knowledgeable, it's going to be hard to not get nailed by that. Um, yeah, so Jeremy's typing in chat as I'm talking. I bought a bunch of chromatic, chromatic lanterns in, in, that were Japanese, and, and those turned out well for me. But for every card that you buy, non-foil foreign, that you sell and make money, there's going to be 10 more that are just going to rot in your box that you won't profit on. Um, and as for the foils, well, the Japanese already know how good, valuable the Japanese foils are, and all the ones that I found over there were actually more expensive than they would be if you bought them in America. So foreign cards in general, I would just stay away from, especially if you're newer to this. Um, Having said that, 
it's definitely worth going out, definitely worth checking out some of the stores if you're in the area, specifically for English cards and casual. You want to look for casual English cards. So I cleaned up on things like doubling seasons while I was over there because those are cards that nobody in Japan wants to play with. They don't really play EDH. Um, and they're just very much less valuable over there than they are here. So those are the cards you want to target. Um, one thing that I would recommend before you go over is if you're really put together, put together a list of like 20 to 30 casual cards, um, things like doubling season or I don't know, Kalia the vast, just cards in that, in that genre. Um, and take photos of them and save them on your phone in a folder. And then you can go over to the stores and walk up to the guy at the shop and show him like, do you have any of these cards in English? And like, how much do they cost? Because some of them, they might have a stack up and you want to be able to grab all of them that you can. Cause that's where you're really gonna, uh, you're going to do well. Um, Another part of this is I would recommend, depending on what your travel itinerary looks like, if you can get up one of those mobile hotspots, the Wi-Fi hotspots, those are extremely valuable. They're basically like a little box. You know, Verizon has them over here too. They're like mobile 4G. Uh, wait, I see Jeremy shaking his head. What's he want to chime in here? T-Mobile, global data all day. That's the real okay. PG finance tip. Sure. So if you're on T-Mobile and you have global data, then great. If you're not, uh, those mobile high, high Wi-Fi spots are great. You throw it in your backpack, the charge lasts all day. Um, then you can look up prices all day long because you're gonna get over there and you're gonna look at a $12 master transmuter and be like, wait, was this the card or is it the other one that's not worth any money at all? And like, you're not gonna remember everything. So being able to look it up is priceless, totally worth the cost. I think I paid like 60 bucks for 10 days. Um, you can also have it shipped to the hotel and then I think you can ship it ship it from the hotel as well. I had a buddy living there that did it for me, but it's not too bad. Um, and then if you have that, you can also look up restaurants and maps and all that. So they're more than worth their value if you're more there for more than three days. Um, wait, so hold on. The Wi-Fi hotspot, know the cards that you want to look for. Only get English. I'd stay away from sealed product. Hauling it is a pain in the ass, and it's not worth. The profit margins aren't good enough, so just avoid them. Um, so yeah, but general, just to recap, general idea, buy English, casual EDH cards, not sealed product, not foreign product, and have a general idea of what you're looking for when you go over there. Paul? So it, that market has changed a lot compared to where it used to be, and there are a lot of the supply is just not the same as it used to be, but you're absolutely not gonna be buying cards that aren't English Buying sealed product makes no sense because either you have to bust it all and then what do you do with it and put it in a small box or you're going to have to try and explain through customs why you have 15 cases of whatever. And even then, that's probably not going to work either way. Um, you definitely want English. You definitely want ADH. You definitely want to focus on modern frame stuff. Um, and then like you only really need to know old border stuff that's like $5 and above just to snag the stuff that shouldn't be there. But mostly you want to focus on modern frame and honestly probably mostly Zen 4 works. So the old stuff that isn't cheap has all just gotten picked. Yeah, I don't think, I, I think that's all very good advice too. The only caveat I would give to that is keep your eye out for stuff that may have spiked like in casual circles that might not have quite caught up. So like look back at cards within the last month, especially that have moved from, from casual play and look for those. Those are gonna be great targets because a lot of those stores might not have updated their prices yet. And that's where you can find really juicy margins. What's a what's a casual card that spiked recently? Uh, I mean, doubling season was a little while ago. Inexorable Tide. Yeah, Inexorable Tide. Savage Beating, um, Door of Destinies. 
Maybe. I don't know. If, I don't think door moved, but those are the types of cards, right? Like, you, you know, if you can pin those things, you can usually sometimes they're days and weeks behind. I was there, by the way, uh, last win winter of 2015. So I'm about two years out now. Yeah, I think uh, Travis and Paul pretty much hit. <clears throat> excuse me, just pretty much hit on the head. Uh, buying seal probably just makes no sense. Um, anyone who is friends with me on Facebook or on Twitter, you can see. There's just a mound of sealed product back there in foreign that I literally cannot move. And I'm basically making like less than 5% on those just because I want them gone. Um, it used to, people used to buy Japanese sealed product and bring it back. That's just not a thing anymore. Um, <clears throat> there is, I'm not going to turn my camera, but I have a ton of foreign bulk that sits over there. People basically just buy stuff behind me. They crack it. They sell it back to the store. That stuff doesn't sell online. No one wants it. Basically, unless it's a high-end Japanese foil, <clears throat> there's no real market for it. And the market for high-end Japanese foils is already so small to begin with. It's just not really worth your time. Um, the Most stores, they tend to be very isolated. So like Travis said, prices tend to be somewhat slower to update. Um, in all honesty, if you speak to some, if you talk to a lot of the Japanese stores, most of them won't even know what TCG player is. They don't really have a reference frame for what prices should be. A lot of prices are basically what they set because they tend to have a very static player base, people who are loyal to them, people who come there consistently. So price, again, prices tend to be slow to update, but as, <clears throat> as time's gone on, more people have caught on to this it's become harder and harder to find um, the the steals, I guess. Like, it used to be profitable. You could used to pick through, like, bulk foil boxes. I think I had a friend that found an 8th edition foil merchant scroll <clears throat> in a 10-cent box um, because they because they literally had no idea. Um, like, if, if you want to do that, it, like, you can go through and look through the boxes, but realistically, so much of that stuff has been picked through. Um but on the flip side, there are just so many stores in the downtown Tokyo area that it's very likely that you can walk into a store, flip through boxes, and I'm sure there are still gems in there. But it's as time has gone, has gone on, more and more people know what they're doing. They know what to look for. You have a lot of Japanese vendors that come to U.S., the U.S. vendors that go to Japan, et cetera, that it's becoming much harder to find the diamonds in the rough. Yeah, I, I sort, sifted through a fair bit of boxes. Um looking for exactly that stuff, you know, the foil merchant scrolls in a 10 cent box. And it was not successful. Uh, it is absolutely not worth your time. And because even if you find a couple of them, it wasn't worth the hours that it took you to identify them. So you're much better off just grabbing, scan the cases, look for casual cards that are, that are way cheaper, take those and be done with it. Especially there's, um, what did we say before the cast ad? There was like 60 stores in Akihabara in like a three square mile radius. Like you couldn't get through all those stores if you wanted to spending three minutes in each of them. So, you know, grab the low hanging fruit. You know, a way to pay for your trip though, uh, take a fuck ton of forcibles over there and sell them for 8,500 yen each. Cause that's what everyone's paying right now. I thought you were going to say have your parents finance it. Cause that would work pretty well too. What do you think? Yeah, that would be a good idea if my parents were paying for the trip, but they're not. So, yeah. I also just want to add something in. So a lot of people that are maybe newer or, or not necessarily as well-versed in buying and selling cards, there's like this weird allure that people have to foreign cards that because they cost more money, they must be better to have to own. But the reality of the situation is 
it's just not worth ever owning a foreign card unless you personally want to play with it. Don't buy any foreign cards because you think that they're more money and they'll make you more money because they're just so hard to get rid of. They're so hard to sell. Just for the average person, you can't bring them to a store because in the United States, most of them won't buy them anymore. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, I've never been to Tokyo for specifically Magic, so it'll be interesting. And Tokyo is just sort of a, like, I'm sure I'll write an article on it for Card Confidants, but Tokyo is just like sort of the third city after the first two cities are done and like professionally like bought and whatnot. Tokyo is just sort of let's walk around and see what happens. And like I was told, I literally talked to uh, Tokyo MTG and Haruya today um, about like certain shops that will go down if you spend like X amount of yen there. Um, so yen you're in Japan, I guess you can find some good deals, but uh I don't know. I'm sure Paul has the most experience out of this because he's been on the circuit so long. Uh, is there anything else that you sort of want to talk about with the, in regards to any foreign market, Paul? So I think one of the biggest things is just, so obviously like doing this professionally versus not, there's a lot of things where it's like, it's my job to do the homework or to have someone who I'm working with do the homework about, you know, a particular market if we're dealing with certain people. But it's just, um, a lot of it is just like if you're going to go, like if you're specking on a card, looking to see what it is in other markets is valuable, things like that. But a lot of this foreign stuff is, you know, knowing basic things like magic card market, stuff like that, interacting with people on social media, or even just watching people, you don't even have to interact with them. Because you see things, you know, like when Saito's websites like post what is in store hot list is, it's like that's valuable information that's, you know, completely free. Because, you know, expecting yourself to, like, do something on, like, a professional level is necessarily realistic. So, like, getting the free stuff that doesn't take any time is just better. Yeah. Um, so, as re in regards to Japanese sealed product, um, Paul, is there, like, does MTG deals, for example, even stock Japanese packs? So we used to, but I do all the per all the uh, purchasing for seal product, and we used to sell them, and they would sell in store a little bit. Then, like, we had a couple sets where it's like one box just sat because no one cared, and I eventually just stopped ordering it. Like, I don't even order like the ones that used to be free money, like the Russian boxes, because I just don't want to deal with it. It's an extra skew. It takes up more space. People have to ask for it. I just rather have English and not care. To give some context, I picked up six. Japanese cons of Tarkir boxes while I was over there. And I didn't pay a lot for them. I think they were around about 80 to 100,000 yen, which at 100 to 1 would have been the same American, the same you'd pay in America, but the, the exchange rate was good, so they were better than that. But even now I'm looking on eBay and you know they're selling for like 110, maybe 115. On for the same product. So, and I've been on the city on those for two years. Cons of Tarkir with fetches or spoiled Japanese fetches in those boxes, and their the price isn't really moving. So, it's just not worth it. Here's hoping Frontier takes off. I mean, Frontier's that's pretty big over there. Sorry, uh, that's the type of thing like with those boxes where you you're going to be another year and change out because like those boxes can't mature until Zendikar fetches get reprinted. There's just no chance that a cons box can mature to be anything's worth anything with Scalding Tarn's like $80. It's just not possible. And so like if 
you know, Zen fetches are in MM3 and MM3 is a big print run, you know, like you're looking at something where like maybe in 12 months from that point, you maybe have a shot. Per Jeremy's comment, maybe I should bring the sealed boxes back to Japan and sell them over there. Frontier's more popular. That's how you pay for flights. Six um, boxes of tons of Tarkir. Six <laughs> boxes of tons of Tarkir, man. Um, yeah. Uh, we have another question from one of our live viewers. If you guys are listening to this cast after the matter, we do host a live discussion forum where we can interact with uh, people who basically uh, want to catch the cast live. Uh, Ken Sneed asks, question one, is old school hype dead? I haven't heard anyone say anything about it lately. And does this diminish the potential for those cards? Um, short answer would be uh, Sigmund Osfresser writes articles for quiet speculation about that literally every week. That's what they pay him for. And old school is definitely not dead. Um, now the prices might not be as obscene as they used to be as far as like the price spikes go, but it's not definitely, it's not dead. Like there's events all the time at every Grand Prix. Well, and Channel Fireball is officially hosting them now. That's not the question he asked. I you are so I think there's two I think there's two questions here. Sure, go for it. Is old school magic dead? And is old school magic hype dead? I think the hype is pretty much dead just because everyone got excited, it was cool, and that's it. Okay. People play, some people don't play, and that's where we are with it. So the hype, it's not really hyped up anymore. But people do still play as per Channel Fireball offering an actual 9394 side event. Uh, at whatever Grand Prix it is that Jeremy mentioned. So it's not dead, but it's quiet. You know, a couple people play here and there. It's vintage-esque, I would say. So I think the thing that... <clears throat> so to look at the actual question itself, is vintage hype dead? It's dead in the sense that people aren't necessarily drawing, oh, I'm like super excited about this tournament that's coming up mainly because the people who do already play old school, they already know that, oh, Eternal Weekend, we're going to hang out at a bar on Wednesday, play old school, etc. Um, <clears throat> but the, the, I think the hidden message behind old school is what it's actually doing to... What the hell? What does that mean? Jesus. The, the hidden question is, what does the old school hype actually do to old cards? And I think that secretly... Old, old school cards are actually going to be like the next bubble that's going to hit in MTG finance. Um, it, the cards are just slowly, slowly disappearing. It's Ed, like, it's, it's no secret that... Fucking pen. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's no secret that um, that like alpha beta cards, like realistically, those are the cards that are probably going to explode in value very soon. I think things like unlimited power is horrendously underpriced. Um, even the, like commons like Swords of Plowshares, Counter Spells, Lightning Bolts, um, those are the common ones that see play in Legacy. But there are plenty of cards that it's quite literally very impossible to just find like a near mint or decent condition alpha common. Um, and as uh, those, as you, they walked into my shop two months ago. Sure, must be nice. Um, <clears throat> But as time goes on, right, it's just, I, like, one of my best purchases in Louisville was, like, an alpha, probably, like, close to near mint counter spell for 125 bucks. Um, <clears throat> it's, like, those types of things. People don't price them well. Uh, it's very, very hard to find. And there's always people that just buy them. They tuck them away. They want them graded. Um, 
<clears throat> those that's actually the secret behind old school in terms of the actual format itself i could care less but it's finding those things that you can turn over a very very decent margin to people who actually do want them i think that's really what's going on with old school that's relevant to mtg finance we really need to uh make the chat our channel chat viewable to the public or something because multiple of us have now reacted to the conversation occurring that we have privately on the side here that our viewers can't hear which is why ed yelled because jeremy insulted his social life so Ed was reacting to that it's okay jim says i have no hair for those that aren't aware i was caught in a hairy situation and after a close shave i managed to get out so Jesus, right for fucking popsicle. Sorry, I used the last F line. <laughs> well, I'm gonna go kill myself after this cast. But um, no. Uh, do you guys want to move into pick of the week? We spent about 40 minutes talking about Japan, about arbitrage, and about just normal, standard, and modern trends. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about before we move into pick of the week? Um, one last thing about old school is that I think it's just going to become like where it's an eternal weekend thing, and other than that, there's ancillary stuff, but. You're going to see like a little market spike a month before Eternal Weekend and then no one's going to care again. Yeah, I think old school is not so much about playing the format because I'm not even sure that those people that own the cards do that. I think it's just entirely a collector's item at this point. Just owning the cards because you want to own the cards is the reason why they're expensive, not because you actually play with them, which is like really weird because they're more like Beanie Babies at that point and less like magic cards or i don't know they're like baseball cards or something maybe that was a bad example but they're they're purely collector items and not so much about being able to play with them yeah what i mean that's about the social dynamic that's about the people who are like really excited to show off how much money they have and cards they won't even shuffle to other people who are also equally excited and that type of social utility is something that people will pay for because magic players don't have friends like they lack soap and they lack friends. Like well, it, well, they, play, they have plenty of friends. It's just that they want to have friends to look at the same cool pieces of cardboard that don't matter. Hey man, I have foil EDH decks. I really enjoy looking at them just as much as my opponent does. Then that you should completely understand why people play ninety three ninety four. Then because it's it's the same thing. No, I, I yeah I do. I understand why they play it. I just don't think they actually end up end up. I don't think they end up playing as much as they just end up collecting. How many of us and percentage of our viewers spend as much time playing as they do all of their other magic-related activities? I'm so at like ninety-nine point five to point five at this point. If you're a casual listener of this cast and you just want to know how to not lose money playing magic, I feel like most people. Uh, play more magic than they like selling. But, like the whole reason, more time selling than playing is why we have this cast, is to save people time so that they don't have to spend five hours a day shipping orders or something and crying over how many dimes they made. So, I mean, I'm I'm fucking going across the the country to get it's magic. The last cards. one, man. It's the last one. Yeah, I that's hope our it's third, worth it. That's our third f bomb for the cast that it's still family appropriate on some of the places we upload this to. Um, but like, you know, Travis went to Japan with his girlfriend or wife, I guess. Is that what you guys want? And uh, 
and like spend a day getting magic. Ed travels every week for magic. Paul used to travel every week for magic. Jim tri- traveled every week losing for magic. And like, no, you know, all of our listeners are like, can't, don't have those opportunities. And if they do, we probably know them because they're doing like such crazy things like that. Like, time out. Time out. Yeah. What? With the amount of losing I did and just the amount of winning that I did, I did the math. I broke even. You broke even? Yes. The amount of money that I spent on entry fees to events was equivalent to the free plane ticket that I got to Hawaii. It doesn't include your time or like your deck or anything else. Yeah, yeah but I was, I was not going to do anything else at that time or deck anyway, so that, I'm not counting those things. Okay. But anyway, the reason why they're listening is because we spend so much goddamn time on Magic. And, like, it's obscene. And, like, that's why people listen is because we have, like, wisdom, I guess. I don't know. Like, you could be Jason Alt and just, like, throw things at a dartboard the entire time and just be like, oh, EDH, it went up. I'm right again. Or, like, you know, same thing with Doug. Like, you literally can't lose when he calls his shots because he's like, well, everything's 10 cents, guys. You should invest in that because you literally can't lose money. I don't know. I feel compelled to say that it was my girlfriend at the time, current fiance, and we spent – Hours and hours and hours. We were there for 10 days, and I bet on eight of them, I spent at least two hours in Magic Card Shops during that trip. Because I did, went on the condition that I could hit all the Magic stores I could to pay for the trip. I'll make sure to do that when I go to China. I have no idea what the Chinese market's like. Do either of you guys, Paul or Ed, or even Jeremy? Uh, I've been to China, not for Magic, and I hated it, so I'm probably not going back. The uh, the market's kind of interesting. It's um, sort of like a weird hybrid in that they're directly influenced by like Japanese and American prices because a lot of people do, do work a lot of arbitrage there. And so it's kind of a weird market that doesn't really have anything to do with China itself so much as what everyone else is paying. I'll figure it out when I get there. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think we should go, go back on the rails and go to the pick of the week that Jerry was trying to can I get one more word in? Like everyone, it, like say, where are you going? Beijing for like work or something? No, I don't know exactly what yet. I My girlfriend's Chinese, so we'll probably go and visit a bunch of places. Okay. I was just wondering because everyone's trying to make a little bit of profit when you're over there. So, you know, you should be fine. All right. Let's go into Pick of the Week. Jim, if you want to start off, what do you got for this week that you think will go up or that you called correctly in the past? Well, in past information doesn't really help us because it's already we're past that point. Uh, the two cards that I want to look at for standard that I think have not moved nearly enough um, based on their play and their possible future play are Metalwork Colossus, which is like a dollar fifty, I believe. Three dollars. You're late. No, I just looked. It was like two dollars, wasn't it? Three dollars. All right. Well, then I bought them for a dollar on Thursday, and I thought they were still cheap. Uh, I still think that card could still go up. I think it could be a five to ten dollar card pretty easily. Lowest on TCG Play right now is two dollars. We three. sell at mid, which is three dollars. Okay, whatever. Point being, Metalwork Colossus showed us this weekend on camera that it's very good against decks that are trying to beat the low to the ground green black decks and the Sahili Rai decks, because 10-10s are really f- big. And you can just play a lot of 10-10s and kill somebody. 
It's just it's going to be like the Aetherworks Marvel deck where it'll fall out of favor for a little bit because the meta game won't be good for it, but then it'll come back with a vengeance and it'll be like ten dollars on the weekend. My other card that I really think does not see enough play and will see a lot of play soon is Nahiri the Harbinger. It is the right colors for the Jeskai Sahili deck, and it basically lets you kill all of the different hate cards that you could possibly play except for Shock against the Sahili deck. It's a pretty clean answer to Walking Ballista and Authority of the Councils and just like all these other like rando cards that hose the Sahili deck. Um, and it also just sometimes goes and finds a Torrential Gear Hulk, and that's also just going to be a thing more often than not. So I think those two cards have a lot of room to grow in the near future. Uh, my pick is probably going to be Aetherworks Marvel, oddly enough. Um, it's strange, but it's kind of gone through this period where it started low, and then people immediately got on board with how busted it was. Uh, it did see some play of the Pro Tour, but because it didn't put anyone in the top eight, it kind of dropped off pretty hard. And then once people realized that Aetherworks Marvel, you could build a shell that's not all in on the combo, it started to go up again. And now that people aren't playing, it's back to being at a low point again. And I think it has it has one of those very, very high ceiling potentials, but very low floors, which is kind of what you want spec to be. And the fact that it's mythic and it's going to be in standard for two years, I think it leaves a lot of room for uh, for someone who wants to buy in a maybe like two or three playsets to potentially do well with it down the road. Especially since if it does ever see play, it will see play as a four of. Um, I like I like the Aether works marble probably because i still have a bunch uh i'm gonna go with glint sleeve siphoner that's its name it's the uh new pseudo dark confidant it's two mana for two one gives you some energy you can pay energy to draw cards whatever um you know we've gone through the whole the new dark confidant song and dance like five times over the last handful of years uh they've all been really bad i think uh was it pain seeker pain something the inspire one from theros comes to mind as the most egregious example i mean that format even had springleaf drum in it and somehow that card couldn't make it work but this one looks pretty good um you know they're still pretty cheap right now they're like a dollar fifty a dollar and a quarter so and we did see four of them in one of the top eight decks this weekend which was more than you could say for any of the other dark confidant uh ones so um i'm not telling you to go out and buy it today but watch maybe the modal results this week if if it's uh if the revolt is live check star city next weekend for it and if you see it popping up repeatedly um then you might you might actually see the price start to move it could go from a dollar dollar fifty to five or six bucks uh, all things considered i just want to make mention that uh apparently aether revolt is supposed to be up on moto on wednesday after downtime which is faster than it's ever been awesome paul Um, do you have a pick for this week of like any card you think will go up or you Anything like yeah. that? Um, I like sort of feast and famine as like a maybe like a one to two month out. I think uh, if you look at the masterpieces, there's a reason that sort of feast and famine is way more than fire and ice and light and shadow. But like non foil copies are just less than darks so than modern masters. And I get that there's a little bit of a population issue. Like this card should just be thirty five, and it's not. Interesting. I'm not really sure what to pick this week. There's like so many good things. I think I'll go with one of the obvious ones and say it's time to start trading for Thought Not Seer. 
that card's getting pretty cheap. Like all the Eldrazi's getting cheap. It's, you can't really go wrong trading for them right now, even though they'll go down in rotation. Because they're not really seeing like there's a blue red deck that a lot of my locals played that had Eldrazi, and then the format rotated, and like they can't play that anymore. So I would argue that most of the Eldrazi prices are just based off casual or or like modern and legacy and vintage play than they are standard right now. And like if there's a deck that starts playing Thought Not Seer and stuff again, they'll go back up. So that's something I'm I'm looking at trading into. A lot of conspiracy stuff is going to get cheaper because people keep cracking boxes for Leovold. So there's opportunity there. I got show and tells for eight dollars the other day. That felt like, a, and this is like not like the shop buy list stuff. This is just like online eight bucks, and I was like, yeah, that that seems fine. So, yep. I don't know. There's a lot of good opportunity. I'll be dog bulk rares in bulk. That was remember, easy. Remember when show and tell was like nearly a hundred dollars. You remember when um, Jace the Mind Sculptor was 160? I do, but yeah. he's not $8 today, which is why the show and tell is funnier. Anyway, I want to thank everyone for coming on. If you guys sort of want to go ahead and say where people can find you, where people can buy from you, and all that I fun wanna, stuff. I want to talk about one, one card from... Um, Spiracy that is way more expensive, way faster than I was thinking it was going to be. What's that blue it expropriate? Expropriate. It's a game ender in EDH. Yeah, it's like time stretch, but actually, you actually win the game instead of making it take two more turns. That card's nine dollars now, and it's pretty high for what like is normally a really bulky mythic kind of card. Did you see the flow price? People. What? Oh yeah, yeah the, the flow price. Yeah, I wanted to buy one. I wanted to buy one a long time ago, and I was like, "Nah, it's oh, it's actually not that bad. You can get one for fifty nine, sixty dollars. It's not as bad as I was expecting, but yeah, those the, the EDH foils from like conspiracy, like weird print run sets, are just always really expensive. I really like those non foils though, like the super casually like derpy cards from Conspiracy too, especially the Mythics. I think they're just going to be a free roll in like a year. Subterranean Tremors for sure. I think that card will break out next year from the ground floor it's been at. All right, where can people find you guys? In a dumpster behind your house. <laughs> Seriously though, oh, who wants to start? So Jeremy murdered you? What is the what is the? What are you implying? It's there? a fetish. I I don't looking know. For, looking for his underwear. <laughs> I don't know. I probably I'd probably like. Light myself on fire and then jump in his dumpster. Right. I mean, I knew what you were going for there. I just, you know, I didn't feel like you actually. I mean, the puns. The puns like, man, I'm just gonna bleed out, and just that's where he's gonna hide my body, probably. I see. Okay. So, oh, all right. Ed, do you want to start since we're? No, I got this, man. I got this. My name is Jim Casal, not uh, Caesar Salad, as it was earlier mentioned. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at P-H-R-O-S-T underscore. I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday in MTG Price. I do the podcast MTG Fast Finance. And if you like playing Magic, check out Scry.Land, the Find Magic events in your area. Uh, I'm Edwin. You can find me on Twitter at Edwin13. Uh, I will be in San Jose this weekend behind the Tokyo MTG booth. 
Uh, I'll be hosting regionals here in uh, Catskill, New York at Curtin's Game Store, and then I will be at GP Pittsburgh. Hi, I'm Paul Fudo. I used to go to a lot of GPs. You can find me at Twitter at Paul Fudo. Um, I'll be at GP San Jose, but I won't be working the booth, I don't think. So if you see me say hi, I'll have no bandless modern. And I'm Zemet. You can find me on Twitter at Zemet Sells Magic. You can find me in the great state of Missouri. And I wanted to thank Jim uh, Catastrophe for coming on the cast this week. It was really nice of him. You guys this can always find us. So old, so fast. You guys can always find us live, or you guys can always find us when we're updating the newest cast and when we're going to go live at Cartel underscore Finance or on this YouTube channel. And if you listen live, we really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys next week for Cartel Cast number forty.